Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Peter Masurlian and Michelle Sandiford. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, federal guidance for how to standardize elections. Plus, shutdowns add to mistrust in Congress and federal agencies, it seems. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first... With growing budget uncertainty, the Air Force is trying to figure out how it can make the progress it wants to within its financial constraints. The normal congressional budget authorization process can take a long time, but continuing resolutions and a potential government shutdown by November 17th adds to the uncertainty and further delays the timeline. However, the Air Force has an initiative to help it be more flexible while it waits for its budget. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric has the details. Kirsten, good to have you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, of course, of course. So how is the Air Force trying to be more flexible in this era of budget uncertainty? So the Air Force, like many other agencies, is waiting for congressional funding to start new programs. And to bridge this gap while it waits, it has a legislative initiative before Congress, dubbed the Quick Start Initiative, to let it begin early phase, low cost preliminary work while it waits for congressional approval and funding. And this is important to let the Air Force not delay its modernization efforts. The Quick Start Initiative is not aimed at continuing resolutions, but rather the normal budget process, which can take many months, if not a year. But like I said, it's before Congress, so it's still waiting for approval. All right. And I understand that Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall has recently discussed the Quick Start Initiative. What did he have to say about it? So Secretary Kendall is a fan of the initiative. He recently spoke at a Center for New American Security event about his hopes for the program. I'm hopeful that that'll be approved this year and give us a little bit more flexibility in the future. But right now, under the rules we're operating under, we can't start major new programs until we get approval from the Congress. Secretary Kendall also says... I've been advocating for this for decades because the way our process is set up is we do our planning uh, and then we go through a long deliberation process and then we ask the Congress for a budget and then we wait on the order of nine months to a year for them to actually pass the bills and provide the money. All of that time is time we're ceding to China. We're in a race for military technological superiority. There's no question about that. And they're moving forward very quickly. And I identified that personally in 2010, well over 12 years ago when I came back to government in 2010. So we need to move quickly. Uh, And just giving away time that we could use doesn't make any sense to me. Got it. And so how are continuing resolutions impacting the Air Force? I imagine it's much like other agencies, but even more complex just because of all the moving parts. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways. So a continuing resolution greatly impacts the Air Force because it delays new programs and future planning. It also, not having permanent funding means that the Air Force can't increase funding on items that it plans to increase funding on. Take, for example, you know, production rates. They can't increase these production rates and must be kept flat because of funding limitations. So, you know, if you think of the U.S. sending munitions to Ukraine and Israel, 
Kendall was saying that those levels were already low and now they're further depleted. So that was one area that he listed. He also described other areas that are important for in other Air Force programs that he would want production to increase, but are at kind of a standstill right now. But this also impacts hiring and contracts. A good example of that is our C-3 battle management system, the Advanced Battle Management System, which is the Air Force and Space Force's part of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. We intend to double the budget for that effort in 24. So we would be kept at half the rate at which we're prepared to spend if the bills don't pass or until they pass. So that that has a big impact. You can't hire people. uh, You can't put contracts in place. And if you do, you have to limit the scope of work of them. And what are the other challenges related to funding affecting the Air Force? So the Air Force knows what it wants to do with funding. The issue is just getting the funding and spending it meaningfully. So Secretary Kendall said that the goal is to quickly get tools into the hands of war fighters. And he was saying basically like, when the Air Force has the money, it knows how it wants to spend it, and just the challenge is, is getting it. We know what we need to buy. We know where to buy it from. <laughs> we need the money to buy it. That's really where we are right now. There is a very long list of things that I would love to buy for the Department of the Air Force that I can't afford to fund. We have a tendency in the last few years, at least, to have started too many projects. We can't afford them all. Uh, we need to be more focused and more disciplined about starting things that we really do intend to take in a production field. All right. And that's Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. We've been speaking with Federal News Network defense reporter Kirsten Eric. And uh, here's to more Air Force budgeting woes. And we'll have you on as hopefully the budget process gets a little bit more simplified for Kendall there. Oh, yeah. We all have our eyes to see what Congress does this week. All righty. And you can keep an eye on all of Kirsten's coverage on this and the ongoing shutdown and how it's going to affect the many facets of the Defense Department if it does take place right at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, federal guidance for how to standardize elections. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Hi, I'm Mike Richmond of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. This Veterans Month, we honor and thank the more than 18 million living veterans for their bravery, resilience, and sacrifice in the line of duty. It's essential to take a moment to reflect on the unwavering commitment of those who have worn the uniform. Did you know that most veterans have earned benefits and services from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, health care, disability compensation, pension, education, job training, home loans, life insurance, burial benefits, and more. Thank a veteran this Veterans Month, but also make sure they aren't missing out on the great benefits available to them. To learn more, visit va.gov or call 1-800-MY-VA-411. I'm Mike Richmond. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. A new report from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission tested the durability of a new kind of way for people to have their voting information tallied. Election poll books, or e-poll books, look to replace paper records and allow access to digital voter registration records. As you can imagine, though, with convenience comes the opportunity for that information to fall into the wrong hands. So how secure are e-poll books? To discuss the results, we welcome Chairwoman of the EAC, Christy McCormick. Ms. McCormick, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you just sort of start out at a baseline here of explaining to us what e-poll books are and what are they designed to do in furthering American election technology? Sure. E-poll books have been in use for, I would say, since about late 2008, 2009 time period. Started with about, you know, 12 or 13 states using these maybe 15 years ago. We're up to 60% of the country using them at this point. They are electronic EPB or electronic poll book, and they seek to either supplement or replace the old paper poll books that we had at the polling places. Voters may recall and people may recall going into a polling place and a poll worker flipping through a huge book looking for your name. These will replace those books. They do replace those books. And generally, they will take, for example, an ID like your license and scan it or swipe it through the machine so that you get the correct ballot and that they check to make sure that you're an eligible voter to make sure that you've only been issued one ballot. There's many uses for these books. They also provide some data afterwards so we know how many people checked into a polling place, how many people voted, and we can use the voter history and documentation of the voters voting. Got it. And yeah, that wait for while they're flipping through, for some reason, I'm always nervous. I don't know why I'm always scared they're not going to be able to find me. But it sounds like that this will kind of streamline things a little bit in in the states that are using it. And where is it being used today? So as I said, about 60% of the states, about 40 states are using them at this point statewide, and some states about half and half, some states, uh, some only some jurisdictions are using them. And Some states allow the jurisdictions themselves to choose this kind of technology, and sometimes it's done on the state level. But it's uh, varied across the country. Many states use it across the whole state. It does speed up lines. It has sped up the process significantly, and it helps the poll workers, you know, make sure that they have accurate and up-to-date information for every voter that walks in the door. So that information is the center of what you all were trying to find out is if it is a secure way of holding people's voting information. What were you all trying to look at in testing this technology out? So we've been hearing for many, many years that this is something that the election officials want us to do to have this technology tested. We've had a testing program for the actual voting systems themselves that was authorized to the Election Assistance Commission through the Help America Vote Act after the Bush v. Gore race. But the election supporting technology, those things we don't vote on that might be connected to the internet, for example, or to a cloud, those things have not been formally tested on a federal level. Many states have their own testing programs, but we have never had federal standards or federal testing of these this type of equipment. This is something that election officials have been interested in. We've heard from congressmen senators that they're interested in this happening. So a couple of years ago, we formulated this program. We finally got funding to do this program last year from Congress. And so we initiated it and we invited a number of commercial manufacturers of these electronic poll books and state and local state jurisdictions and local jurisdictions who may have what we consider homegrown electronic poll book systems brought those in, got laboratories, accredited laboratories to do the testing. We had to draft some requirements. We based these on other requirements that states have that we have in our own voting system testing program. Brought those machines in. We had five commercial manufacturers and two state and local jurisdictions. So we had uh, seven e-poll books that we were testing. They are the majority of what the systems that are used in the country, especially the commercial. And we had them go through testing out at laboratories to make sure that they were secure 
that they are uh, accessible and usable. So for things like, you know, screen height, you know, multi-factor authentication, the security functions on them, what do they have in place to mitigate any sort of hacking that might be attempted? So a huge number of factors go into it, requirements of testing. And fortunately, all of the poll books that we tested passed those draft requirements. I think the one area that we would like to see some improvement in is the way that the manufacturer's Chrome-grown systems document the features that are available, the technical specifications, so that things that aren't visibly present to the eye, we can make sure are being tested and are secure and usable and accessible as necessary. We're speaking to Christy McCormick. She's the chairwoman of the Election Assistance Commission, and she's also the designated federal officer for the Technical Guidelines Development Committee. Can you tell me a little bit about that committee and what it does? Is it more in line with what this test was looking at and looking at the technology surrounding an election rather than directly counting votes? Well, the Technical Guidelines Development Committee was a FACA, a federal assistance committee set up by the Help America Vote Act. Congress set that up to assist us in setting the standards and the requirements for voting systems themselves. They haven't been involved directly, although we have asked them for advice on this particular program, and we will be having a meeting of that group coming up shortly in early December, and we'll do a presentation to them. But they that committee is technical experts who help us with drafting and uh, making sure that we cover all the necessary requirements for testing voting systems. Got it. Okay. And so how deep can you go into the technologies that surround an election? As you mentioned, you know, you may not think of somebody actually hacking a voting machine, but, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, somebody getting into a laptop at at a voting place or something like that. Is that the next step in this or is it just going to be continually monitoring this technology itself? No, we're going to add some other technologies. This is our first tech election supporting technology that we are testing, and we'll set these requirements. And then we will turn to something like a blank ballot delivery. We're going to look at election night reporting. We're going to look at voter registration systems. Uh, So we're going to look at a number of different types of equipment and systems that support voting in the country. And it's important that all of these are looked at for security. We've never had any evidence that the actual voting system has been hacked into a real-time basis. Uh, We have had some white hat hackers in, you know, a different environment do that. So far, nothing has ever been shown to us to have shown that the systems themselves have been hacked. But we have had a couple of reports. I think in 2016, we saw that a voter registration database was put on the dark web. So, you know, we are concerned about the security of our voters' information and how it's used. And so this will help us uh, secure that data from outside hacking. Yeah, with election security, you know, really in the forefront of so many different news stories, I'd be apt not to ask a person like yourself in this position, you know, what is your overall sense of the security of American election technology? I think it's very secure. You know, there's always a risk. We always have to stay ahead of bad guys who try to hack into this and nation state actors who are interested in doing this. One thing I would say is that most voters don't realize how deep the layers of testing are. We do a lot of testing on our voting systems not only on the federal level, but on the state level. Sometimes there's two different testing and certification programs, but also at the local level. Before every election, most jurisdictions, if not all, do something that's called logic and accuracy testing, where they actually put ballots through the actual machines that are going to be used on voting day to test to make sure that they're tallying those votes and that they're secure. Voters are usually, the public is usually invited to go visit 
um, watch that process or even participate in it. But we do have very strict uh, guidelines for the security of our machines, where they're kept, how they're kept, and you know how they should be handled, the chain of custody of the machines. So I would say that they're very secure. I think there are some processes that may not be as secure as our voting voting machines themselves, but I have full confidence on our voting systems. We do sometimes see anomalies happen. Sometimes screens slip. You know, there's environmental factors that affect the way a machine works, but that's not generally a security issue that's either human error or just environmental issues that we need to address. We do look at those kinds of things as well in the testing. We test the machines to very low temperatures and very high temperatures. We check to see whether, you know, there's a some sort of possibility of human error on how the machines are used and set up. But in general, I would say voters can be very confident in the security of our systems and they should go vote on election day. We just had an election day, but we're coming up on 24. So make a plan to vote next year, both in your primaries, if you have one, and the general election. Christy McCormick is chairwoman of U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Ms. McCormick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. And you can find this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a new source of tension emerges between contractors and the Defense Department. But first, shutdowns add to mistrust in Congress and federal agencies, it seems. It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Another shutdown countdown is upon us. If you're thinking, didn't we just go through one? You're right. All this uncertainty is taking a toll on agency operations and the folks that run the places. To get an idea of how these constant battles could affect things going forward, Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you as well. So I guess just give me the status update of what you're hearing and how things are going to look going forward. Look, you said it exactly right, which is we're back in the soup again. And it's a, you know, it's an ugly place to be. It's remarkably foolish way to run our government. It's bad on all fronts, even if we wind up avoiding uh, a shutdown again. uh, The reality is that managers and leaders across the entire government are having to spend their time preparing for the possibility of a shutdown rather than focusing 100% of their energies on the mission in front of them. So it's enormously wasteful. And, you know, the idea that this is a fight over federal resources, this is the poorest of all ways to actually manage them. It also has long-term consequence to the morale of the existing workforce and the potential for bringing in the new generation of talent that we desperately need. Let's focus on those managers first. I mean, what can you really do when you have no control over the situation and it's a helpless feeling, but you're trying to kind of gauge your workers towards, you know, what they want to do? Is it just to best try to keep them to stay on task or what's the best solution there? Well, it's a great point that you're making. And, you know, obviously, individual federal leaders are not going to be able to ultimately influence the current crisis. I would say over the longer term, It'd be very helpful for leaders across government to help quantify and storytell around the costs of these kinds of log jams. And uh, I think part of the problem is that most people see this as a political battle rather than the reality of it being that it's actually hurting Americans across the board. 
So those stories are not being told. So I think that it's really important for federal employees and anyone listening to this, share your story with us. You know, if we wind up with a shutdown and you get furloughed, tell us what's not happening. Tell us what's not happening in terms of focusing on preparing for a shutdown. That kind of storytelling is very powerful. I think for any manager inside government, it's really important that they put themselves in the shoes of the employees that they're supervising. And it is very disheartening to not have any idea about what's going to happen. Uncertainty is the bane of good management. And part of it is to call it what it is and to be communicating. I think, unfortunately, from the very top of government, there's a tendency to hold back on communicating because the leadership White House and beyond, who doesn't want to give any credence to the possibility of a shutdown. I actually think that's not the choice that is the best one for our government. But I think individual managers should be connecting with their employees, talking to them, figuring out where their heads are at. And even if you can't offer a solution for a Congress, you can be a colleague that helps them you know, see their way beyond this. And I'd come back to mission. Most federal employees are there because they care about serving the public. And this is an interruption in the ability to do that, but they will be able to return full energy to their work eventually, and hopefully that is sustaining. Speaking with Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, you make a great point about some of those stories not being told. Personally, I know of several people who this is right around the Thanksgiving holiday and they have to say no to taking those trips just because they don't know if they're going to have a paycheck when they come back. You know, as employees, uh, what are you hearing from the government workers themselves and some of the hardships that this affects them as? Yeah, no, look, I think you're so right. This affects people in, in all kinds of ways. And you know, again, a continuing resolution is only good in the context of something worse, but it's not a great way of managing our resources either. So I welcome, honestly, the stories that you're hearing and all your listeners, because we'll do our best to circulate them. And we are also trying to provide resources to federal employees on our website that you can go to ourpublicservice.org because, you know, federal employees need support right now. But I think it's really important for federal employees to understand how poorly the American public really understands what they do. And frankly, a lot of that is on our government's not communicating effectively. When you say federal government, most Americans think about bickering politicians in Washington. We need to change that narrative so that they begin to think more about the career civil servants who are serving them across the entire country. And if we did that, our research shows you would see a very different perspective on our government and trust in our government. I'm curious, every time we go through one of these, you know, usually the public face of the federal employee who's affected is first and foremost, our members of armed services, which obviously, you know, that's true in itself. But for some reason, the regular federal employee, run of the mill federal employee just never seems to become the face of dealing with these things. Yeah, you're right. And I think that part of it is, first of all, we need Americans to understand that uniformed folk are also federal employees. And interestingly, I think it's close to 40% of the civilian workforce are veterans. So it really is in many ways, one in the same workforce. And the reason why Americans don't picture or know about the career civil servants is that, you know, one, they're an incredibly modest group. They don't tell their own stories. And by and large, the infrastructure inside our government in public affairs and elsewhere is designed to either protect or sometimes tell the story of the secretary and not of the broader workforce. So we actually need to equip and encourage the public affairs offices and beyond to tell the good stories about what's happening inside government. 
The reality, I think, is that you have this huge infrastructure to find problems in our government from IGs to often the media to congressional oversight. And I think that, you know, problem finding is easy. Problem solving is where the game is. And you need to identify solutions and people who are doing promising things if you're ever going to convert those problems into actually better service for the American public. So the broader metric for me is, is there a recognition culture in government? Do we have leaders who are actually promoting the good work as much, if not more than identifying the problems. And, you know, we have a programs like the Service to America Medals where we try to do that, but that's one of what should be a whole arsenal of, of activities uh, that the federal government's doing and those on the outside too. Yeah, let's focus on those problems and let, let's solve all the world's problems right here, Matt Steyer. <laughs> uh, are there any measures that the partnership itself uh, supports in trying to prevent situations like this one? Absolutely. I mean, there's actually some very good legislation that Senators Lankford and Hassan have introduced and there are other examples, but there's the one that has has been longest standing and most interesting to me. But it frankly would hold accountable the people who should be held accountable, and that's the members of Congress. It's their job. It's actually their job to get the appropriations done, and they haven't done it in regular order since the late 1990s. So this legislation would essentially say, you don't do your job, you don't get paid. And guess what? The public's not going to pay for you to jet home or anything else like that until you do your job. And it really, you know, holds them accountable in a way that I think would be really meaningful. I think you need broader, you know, appropriations budget reform. Plainly doing this every year results in, you know, a constant string of CRs in the best case scenario. So why not make it biannually so that you actually can get this process having more meaning and in a longer term focus for feds that they can plan on. I mean, part of the challenge here is, you know, you give a month of funding that where you can't shut down programs or start new ones. You know, it's the equivalent of saying, I'm going to eat that full loaf of bread, but I'm going to buy it slice by slice. You're going to pay a lot more money. It's going to be a whole lot harder to plan if you can't actually get the, you know, the long runway of of the full loaf. So there are all kinds of ways that we could improve the system. Part of the challenge here is we lurch from crisis to crisis. And honestly, we need the public to be demanding better. And part of that begins by the public understanding what they're losing. The crazy thing is it costs more to shut the government down than to run it. And so, you know, if the idea here is to try to save money, uh, this is the stupidest possible approach possible. Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a new source of tension emerges between contractors and the Defense Department. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. If Congress ever passes the 2024 Defense Authorization Bill, keep your eye on Section 804. It's now in the Senate version, and it's aimed at granting the Defense Department the rights to increasing amounts of contractors' data, more than it appears DOD needs for maintenance and operation of what it buys. Section 804 seems innocuous at first glance. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. Zach, tell us more about Section 804, what's in it, and why it should be of concern to contractors. Sure, Tom. So Section 804, it's only in the Senate version of the NDAA for now, though it could always appear in the House bill, assuming they're 
is actually ultimately a House bill and a continuing resolution and the government's funded and continues. But if that all happens, the Section 804 is proposing a pilot program for use of innovative intellectual property strategies intended to acquire the necessary technical data rights required for operations and maintenance. It sounds innocuous. It might be innocuous in practice, but what raises concerns is that DOD already obtains data necessary for operations and maintenance. It's called OMIT data, operations, maintenance, installation, and training. The government gets unlimited rights in OMIT data. What they don't get right now under the current statute is detailed manufacturing and process data, which is essentially the secret sauce that contractors have that makes their IP valuable. That's the technical data that describes steps, sequences, conditions for manufacturing. And it's not just in the context of actual manufacturing. They use the same terms roughly in the context of software too. So it's what you need in order to take what you're running and reproduce it. You know, something that contractors have spent a lot of money on getting to that stage. Yes. Well, there's two issues that have come up recently. One in recent years, I should say. One is too often the maintenance contracts for complicated and expensive platforms remain with contractors. And DOD would like to say, well, I don't want to fly a Lockheed technician 10,000 miles to install the XYZ actuator somewhere. And the other issue is they want to get into 3D printing and onboard types of manufacturing for replacement parts. So it could be a gambit to give them that capability. It could be. And if that's what they are looking for, they should be paying for it, right? Because the contractors spend a lot of money developing this technology and the know-how that is their competitive edge. So I think contractors have two concerns. One is making sure that they can recoup the costs that they sink into investment. And that's how you continue to foster innovation. And two is to make sure that their competitors don't get what they've just spent a lot of time and money investing into without having to put in anything in the front end. Well, do we know from those that put that provision in there what their intention is, what the senators were listening to? I suspect that this is all part of uh, the complaints that you hear from some of the DOD components about the need to uh, get replacement parts, particularly for platforms that are around for a long time, and pretty much every major airframe is, at costs that DOD considers reasonable. But that's the thing, is DOD's analysis of reasonableness is extremely myopic. Right? They're looking at your costs, allowable costs right now. They're not looking at the CapEx that you're making in order to continue producing a part. They're not looking really at all the costs that went in on the front end, the failed parts, the loans that you've needed to take out, and since a lot of that is unallowable. And they're getting this distorted picture of what your profits are that a commercial company, a real commercial company like an Apple, would never abide by. The price is the price. The market sets the price. And it does that based on, I think, reasonable metrics. DOD's metrics are not quite the same. In other words, if you are making the analogy with Apple, the first iPhone cost a billion dollars for Apple to develop something like that. I don't know what it cost back in 2007, but it was years in development, thousands of people working on it, all of this manufacturing setup, blah, blah, blah. So the first one probably cost them a billion. They're selling it for, you know, 400 at the time or something. So you got to sell a lot of them. So maybe DOD is paying not a volume price, but maybe they have a, in some cases, they're paying the development cost to some degree in that price. 
and then it goes down as more copies are made. And what they would like to do maybe is accelerate the uh, learning curve as expressed in pricing, sounds like. Yeah, that's that's about right. And, you know, they don't really recognize that they're an inconsistent customer. Right? A company, when they're selling a spare part, you know, you've got the OEM that is pricing a certain way, assuming certain sales going down the road. But you have no idea how many times DOD is going to replace this flange on this piece of this uh, you know platform. You're making certain assumptions and then DOD wants to come back and say, hey, restart this manufacturing line. I know you've sold four of these in the last 10 years. We need another two. Oh, and why are you charging us more? Right. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. That issue of the irregularity of demand has large and small implications, including the maintenance of the existence of the defense industrial base itself. And so this would seem to mitigate against suppliers staying around if the DOD has the property data that they need to go somewhere else or make it themselves, which brings up another point. Sometimes you're talking about a bolt. Well, you can make a bolt, you know, on a ship with the right machine. But a lot of these high-end parts of high-end systems, it doesn't have to be a platform. It could be a gyroscopic box or something, are made of exotic materials, very specialized materials where you look like you could fabricate it from the exterior. It would be the same shape and fit, but it wouldn't operate or stand up properly because it's not made of the exact alloy. And so this is the type of information DOD would get. What is the alloy and how is it made? Yeah, that's right. And it's always an interesting question of whether anybody can really do anything with that technical data, right? If you've got the super complicated process and know-how you've developed over decades and you've got the equipment to manufacture it, is somebody really going to take that data and be able to stand up an operation to compete with you, you know, within a reasonable time frame? Maybe, maybe not, but companies don't want to take the risk. I guess the other danger here is, yes, another company would probably not do that, would not be incentivized to do that, but China might be. No, that's that's right. And, you know, that's a much broader question about who's going to end up with access to your data and security of different systems and export controls. And those are all real concerns. But getting back to 804, as it's in the Senate NDAA draft at this point, it's only a limited program, an experiment or a, or a pilot program. And how would it actually work? Do we know? It is way too vaguely stated at this point. I sort of suspect that this is not going to make it into a final bill. Uh, we'll see what a final bill actually looks like if hopefully there is one and soon. This comes, similar types of proposals come about in the NDA almost every year. Some dramatic shift being proposed in the way that DOD buys IP. It doesn't usually get much traction, but it keeps being reasserted because there are stakeholders at DOD that care quite a lot about this. And I think their concerns are real, right? They do want to make sure they can have the operations and maintenance that they need at prices that they need, and they don't like being blackmailed by OEMs. I sometimes fear that they perceive business negotiations that are totally standard commercial practices as blackmail when they're really nothing of the sort. And by the way, when it comes to these detailed specifications and so forth, what do the regulations as they stand now say? So the regulations are a little vague, and, and that is an issue that comes up time and time again in these negotiations. They, the DOD acquires omit data with unlimited rights, assuming that it's actually a contract deliverable. But where the line lies between 
information necessary for operations, maintenance, installation, training, and where it then becomes a detailed process and man manufacturing process data is challenging to assess. There is a Section 813 panel that was impaneled by Congress uh, a couple years ago that looked at this issue. They didn't recommend any statutory changes. They recommended instead that DOD put out some really good guidance, an IP acquisition guidebook. GAO looked at this and they roughly said the same thing. They were a little bit cagier about whether they thought a statutory change was needed. But the IP guidebook is going to be really critical. And that is supposedly around the corner. So everybody's paying attention to see what that's going to look like. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Postal Service, citing higher costs beyond its control, is falling behind on plans to reach long-term financial stability. USPS reported yet another big loss for fiscal 2023. That's after Congress passed major reform legislation to improve its condition. But USPS leaders say the agency's best chance for improvement requires seeing a 10-year reform plan through to the end. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman is here with more. Jory, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. All right. So just how bad of a financial loss are we looking at for fiscal 2023? It's definitely not the kind of news that USPS was looking for here. USPS reported a $6.5 billion net loss for fiscal 2023. It's underwhelming for a couple of reasons under its 10-year Delivering for America plan. This was as early as the agency expected it could start to reach break-even status after years and years of uh, severe net losses. It's also underwhelming because just a year ago in fiscal 2022, uh, it ended that year with a $56 billion net income. Now that is almost exclusively because Congress that same year passed major postal reform legislation that was supposed to put the postal service on firmer financial footing, erase billions of dollars in its uh, balance sheet, and just generally give it a better chance of long-term stability here. Now, we heard from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. He gave a brief on all this before the USPS Board of Governors, and he says that you know, given the bad news, he recognizes it's bad news, but he says that, you know, this 10-year plan was drafted at a time when USPS was still reeling from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he does say that there are signs that USPS can see this plan through. While we are not happy with this result, we cannot lose sight of the downward trajectory the Postal Service faced in the fall of 2020 after years of neglect and willful indifference by its stakeholders and custodians prior. Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy there, so you can hear he's a little bit upset, as everybody seems to be. How does this match up with how USPS thought it would do this year? Right. So this was a year where it hoped it could potentially break even. A couple of reasons why it didn't get there. Two areas of cost that just really blew up beyond what USPS had projected on here. One of them, a very common refrain here, inflation. It saw $2.6 billion in costs attributed to inflation that it didn't anticipate, and about $3 billion in costs that it paid into the civil service retirement system that is common to all federal employees. It, it affects a bucket of uh, some of its older 
postal employees. And so that is just another area where the postal service just saw higher costs than it anticipated. And so this is a, a challenge because USPS actually saw better revenue this year than it thought it was going to, but it's just seen a, a more uphill battle than it uh, initially anticipated when it drafted this plan. So it's going to need some help, it looks like, here. What is it asking of Congress and the White House, and what tools does it need to solve this problem? Maybe once and for all, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's asking regarding that civil service retirement system. They are asking the Biden administration and Congress for a fix to that. Now, the Office of Personnel Management is responsible for administering those benefits to USPS employees, and it ultimately calculates the kind of funding that USPS needs to pay into that fund. USPS and its inspector general office, they both claim that the agency has overpaid into that fund. It's just a long going refrain here that that's just had no resolution up until this point. But USPS is still beating that drum and saying that that would be something that would make a difference here. Now, he was talking to the USPS Board of Governors. What was their reaction like when they heard this news? I think they were similarly disappointed by the results. This is not the kind of news that they wanted to hear, but they recognize that this 10-year reform plan that DeJoy has championed, they are still behind that plan, and they ultimately see that as the kind of plan that the agency needs going forward to you know, see better days ahead. One Governor Dan Tangerlini, who is, formerly was the head of the General Services Administration, He said that, you know, about a quarter of the way into this plan, they haven't seen the kind of results that they were hoping for. But he says, we just got to see it through. We got to redouble our efforts. We also heard from another member of the board, Amber McReynolds. She said that there are some areas of concern that financially USPS uh, hasn't met its targets, but says that give credit where credit is due, that the agency has made some progress stabilizing its workforce and really making some long overdue improvements to its infrastructure. Multiple things can be true at once. We can be achieving parts of the DFA and not others, particularly the financial stability goals and service delivery. We can be strengthening our workforce and while also still struggling to hire in some rural areas, and challenging areas of the country, which has a direct and negative impact on service. We can be hitting milestones in our environmental goals while also still identifying areas of opportunity. It's Amber McReynolds, member of the USPS Board of Governors. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Jory Heckman. All right, so where do we go from here? They are where they are. What does DeJoy have planned for USPS going forward? In summary, they're going to look to increase revenue and decrease costs for the year ahead for FY 2024. DeJoy says that USPS will try to grow its share of the package business where it competes with folks like UPS and FedEx. Uh, it's trying to grow its package revenue by about a billion dollars, which is going to be a challenge given everyone else in that sector. They're also looking to cut about 28 million work hours, try to get all this work done with fewer of those hours uh, from its workforce. Uh, Labor costs are a huge portion of its overall costs. And it's also, going back to McReynolds' comments, trying to modernize its infrastructure here, just try to be more streamlined with its operations. It's going to try to 
open nearly a hundred sorting and delivery centers across the country. They are these mega centers where they merge together the delivery operations, letter carriers, and its processing facilities all under one roof. Uh, and it's also going to roll out 30,000 new delivery vehicles. This is a lot of moving pieces. DeJoy did tell the board that this is not a perfect science, that this is more of an art than a science, and that you know some things will go awry, but that the agency will ultimately fine-tune those problems when they come up. The road to success and the scope of the changes we are compelled to make will invariably result in some disruption on any given week, in any given area, for any given service. However, I can assure the American people and our customers that we will respond rapidly to correct for the impacts to service that might result from these complicated changes. And it's such a large infrastructure and established agency. I'm sure there are many other things that are probably popping up for Louis DeJoy, not just budgetary problems. What else does USPS have going on in the form of other challenges? Yeah, well, as far as other challenges here, the board will soon operate with less than its full strength. It will still have a quorum, but the terms of two of its members, William Zollers and Lee Moak, they will expire this December. And so far, we haven't seen President Joe Biden name anyone to take their place. So there'll be those two vacancies on the board. It's just fewer people at that board uh, making decisions at a time where a lot of decisions are being made. You know, one other thing here is as we look ahead to fiscal 2024, the rest of the year, DeJoy did say that this is also another year where USPS will not break even. This was uh, something that they had hoped for, but this is given the current state of where things are as far as costs, just something that's not going to happen. All right. Federal News Network's Joy Heckman, thank you for the update as always. Thanks, Eric. And you can follow all of Joy's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates on the shutdown and other stories, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. <laughs> 